Hey everyone, welcome to episode two of the Dobbylicious podcast. I'm Michael John, your host, and today I'll be talking about chapter two of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, which is titled The Vanishing Glass. And the name of today's episode is The Dodgy Dursleys, because one of the main themes in chapter two is Harry's experience growing up with the Dursleys. So chapter two starts with a description of the Dursleys' living room, which is described as being, quote, almost exactly the same as it had been on the night when Mr. Dursley had seen that fateful news report about the owls. Only the photographs on the mantelpiece really showed how much time had passed. You know, it could be that they just have timeless furniture. Like, recently I found out that my girlfriend's dad actually keeps his tools in a box which is literally 302 years old. So maybe the Dursleys just don't need to change their living room at all. And this idea that the Dursley's living room hadn't changed in 10 years reminded me of a surreal experience I had last summer where I visited my childhood home after literally nine years. So not quite 10 years, but close enough. In a nutshell, I grew up in Cyprus and I ended up not going back to Cyprus from the age of 20 to 29, which wasn't a planned thing. It just ended up happening like that. So when I finally went back, it was very much a long anticipated return. And when I went back to my childhood home, it felt a bit like when you meet a good friend after a long time has passed, but even though a lot of time has passed, you pick up where you left off and it feels like you only saw them last week. And in that sense, I walked into the house and I felt like I intuitively knew the spaces and it, it felt as though I'd never left. But on the other hand, even though I felt like I still knew the place intimately, there were a few changes which were strange to see. So, for example, we had a black piano which had family photos on top of it and the same piano was in the same place, but the photos had been replaced with pictures of other people because new people are renting the house now. I was there to get some stuff out of the basement and there was this weird contrast between feeling as though I'd never left but then also seeing things I'd completely forgotten had existed. So, for example, my old bedroom curtains which had the three lions england football team logo on was still there um, or i remember being really surprised by the fact that the same microwave was in the kitchen as as what had been there when i was a teenager and these objects i'd completely forgotten had existed were uncovering these sort of untapped memories and i realized i actually had a lot of memories stored in different spaces in that house surprise you know what was really surprising to me was that the microwave out of all things was a kind of unlikely hero in terms of objects in the house which gave me these sharp flashbacks to memories from my teenage years. So anyway, in terms of Harry Potter, I interpreted the fact that the Dursleys' living room has barely changed in 10 years as a reflection of the fact that the Dursleys themselves haven't changed in 10 years. And in a way, after my experience of revisiting my family home after nine years, I value what the Dursleys have, which is a house of preserved memories kind of unchanged by time. And the Dursleys clearly feel that they're living their best life, so they haven't changed anything, and they're still the same people who are perfectly normal, thank you very much, and who, as Uncle Vernon was described in Chapter 1, do not approve of imagination. With that in mind, I sort of chuckled at the fact that they're living with a wizard. So, we find out there are no photos of Harry anywhere, despite the fact that he's lived with the Dursleys for 10 years. And I think that's the first sign we get as readers that the Dursleys and Harry have an unhealthy relationship. And that's a major theme in this chapter where we see Harry being mistreated consistently. Because that idea comes up so frequently in the subsequent chapters, I've kind of 
lumped the ideas together in, you know, I just thought I'd talk about it in one section. So as an 11-year-old or 10 years old or whatever, reading this book for the first time, one of the first signs for me that Harry's childhood was a bit backwards was that he was woken up by his aunt and told to cook the bacon for Dudley's birthday breakfast. And that always stands out in my mind because I used to cook at that age and I remember cooking fry-ups with friends after sleepovers and things, but usually when it comes to birthdays at that age, the adults take care of the children and the children's role is just to enjoy the party. And Harry's role is in the preparation rather than in the participation. So for some reason, that's always stood out in my mind. And I think Joe Rowling really emphasizes Harry's situation in a way that's understandable to children. But as an adult rereading the books, I feel as though I appreciate actually how sad Harry's situation is much more because of how incomprehensible some of the Dursley's choices are in terms of how they choose to treat Harry. And so we hear other things about Harry's daily life. We hear that Harry sleeps in the cupboard under the stairs instead of in a bedroom. We hear there are a lot of spiders in the cupboard, which is a kind of nightmare scenario for children and probably for a lot of adults too. We hear Harry's small and skinny for his age, whereas Dudley is basically an obese child, so it suggests that Harry's being underfed. And Harry doesn't actually have his own clothes. He wears Dudley's old clothes and gets bullied by Dudley to the point that other children at school don't want to be friends with Harry in case they're bullied too. So Harry's very lonely. And, you know, I think Harry's periods of loneliness throughout the book series, whenever he goes back to live with the Dursleys, are something which a lot of people reading the books can associate with, because I think everyone has periods where they feel lonely. I only appreciated the fact that I can feel lonely quite easily when I was about 28 years old, and I'd moved to Sweden, and I was living in a studio flat, which was perfectly nice, and it was the first time I'd actually lived completely on my own without sharing a house or a flat with other people. And uh, I really didn't like it. I started feeling lonely within days of moving into this studio flat, which was saying something because... My previous flatmate was, and probably still is, a communist fanatic who literally believed a communist revolution was coming. And I've, I've, never, I've never experienced anything like this before, because on top of the communist fanaticism, I'd be in the kitchen, and sometimes I could hear him singing in his room, which was next to the kitchen. So that was fine. But then on other occasions, I could very clearly hear what sounded like a mixture of hysterical laughter and sobbing, which just sounded, you know, pretty maniacal. And then he'd open his bedroom door to go to the kitchen and just go, oh, hi, Michael, with, you know, like no signs of having been shrieking literally seconds before that. And so, you know, even now, I still, I've got no idea what was going on there. Anyway, after moving to the studio flat, you know, over some some time, I was able to learn uh, to manage my feelings of loneliness better. And luckily, I made some good friends through work and... Incidentally, they actually told me they wanted me to live with the communist guy because they liked the stories I had of living with him. But I think Harry's periods of loneliness with the Dursleys are something which a lot of people can associate with. And there are several other smaller examples of how badly Harry's treated, like the fact that Dudley keeps breaking Harry's glasses so they're held together with sellotape. And, you know, instead of the Dursleys intervening, they have these deluded ideas about how wonderful their son is. And Petunia describes Dudley as an angel which is in stark contrast to Harry's description of Dudley being a pig in a wig. So I think that's also a good example of how the Dursleys have these rose-tinted glasses through which they see their son. So after this, you know, I felt pretty sad for Harry. 
and the kind of childhood he's having. And I was wondering, you know, why are the Dursleys so horrible to Harry? And I went on to the uh, Wizarding World website to find this article about the Dursleys written by Joe Rowling. And she writes that um, Petunia receives Dumbledore's letter when Dumbledore leaves Harry on, on the doorstep of number four Privet Drive. And she reads about how bravely her sister Lily died and she felt she had no choice but to take Harry in, even though she does so grudgingly. And then she punishes Harry throughout his childhood out of kind of a regret almost for her own choice of taking him in. And Uncle Vernon, on the other hand, is described as having a similar resentment towards Harry as Severus Snape, which is based on the fact that Harry reminds Vernon of James Potter, Harry's dad. Because apparently, when Petunia and Vernon were engaged, they met Lily and James and on a kind of double date. Must have been awkward. And uh, Vernon and James didn't get on. And they both sort of were mocking each other on the date, which ended up in Vernon and Petunia storming out of the restaurant they were having dinner in. So we do learn more about the Dursleys and kind of why they treat Harry the way they do. But I think that comes up in later chapters. So all that's happened in the chapter so far is that Harry gets woken up to cook Dudley's birthday breakfast. And then the family gathers in the kitchen to eat and uh, give Dudley his birthday presents. So we get to this classic scene around the breakfast table when Dudley's receiving his birthday presents and he only counts 37. First of all, if anyone has received that many gifts from their parents alone, just please write in and share what you got because I'm just curious. I find, I mean, thinking of one gift for someone can be tricky, never mind thinking of 37 gifts. And also, I just want to point out, Dudley gets a computer, which nowadays doesn't seem like a big deal. Computers are obviously very commonplace. Got basically, we have mobile phones that are mini computers now, but computers were nowhere near as commonplace in the nineties as they are now. When I was growing up, I didn't know anyone who owned a computer themselves. We would kind of jump on our parents' computers and then use MSN Messenger after school. So you know that's what the cool kids were doing, and the fact that Dudley gets a computer in the nineties is huge, and it's only one out of thirty-seven gifts. So. I think the present scene is an example of Joe Rowling's talent for writing memorable scenes because, I mean, in almost every chapter of Harry Potter, there's a scene which readers can really remember in detail. And in this chapter, we've got the present scene and the snake at the zoo scene, which is coming up. So Dudley is on the verge of having a tantrum because he has fewer presents than the previous year. And then he's pacified by his mum, who promises to buy more presents later that day. And I think the fact that Dudley is so spoiled is actually important for the story because it means that Harry is informed about his own experiences because Dudley's there as a reference point of how spoiled it's possible to be. And then relative to that, Harry can put his own experience on a kind of spectrum of neglect. Whereas, you know, if Dudley wasn't there at all and Harry was just being mistreated by the Dursleys, Harry might grow up thinking that the way he's treated is normal. Whereas, Dudley being there actually helps Harry, I think, to understand the way he's treated is cruel. So the Dursleys' plan for Dudley's birthday was to send Harry off to be looked after by Mrs. Fig, who Harry sort of describes as a mad old lady who's infatuated by her cats. And uh, I actually met a lady in real life who was a kind of, I would say, crazy cat lady, um, for want of a better description. And so I actually went to a lecture at work. And in the interval of the lecture, I went to get some tea and biscuits and I started chatting to this lady who was wearing a scarf with large woolly uh, knitted cat heads on each end of the scarf. 
and she had a cat jumper on. She had leggings covered in like cat faces, and she was also holding this woolly winter winter hat with cat's ears on it. Then, as we were chatting, it turned out just in case her clothes weren't a big enough clue, she was also a vet who specialized in treating cats. She was doing a PhD studying cats, and obviously, she owned some cats. So, I still find you know this combination of all these things in one person is quite unbelievable. So, at the time. I couldn't resist stating the obvious, so as we were talking, I was like, wow, so you're a real-life crazy cat lady. And she just laughed and said, <laughs> she just laughed and said yes. So Harry is happy that he doesn't have to spend the day at Mrs. Figg's, and he's happy that he'll be able to go to the zoo with Dudley and his mate called Piers Polkis, who's part of Dudley's gang, which bullies, uh, which bullies Harry. In the book, it says, Harry's heart gave a leap and, quote, it was... It was even worth being with Dudley and Piers to be spending the day somewhere that wasn't school, his cupboard, or Mrs. Figg's cabbage-smelling living room. At least for me, the best part of any experience is the people you're with, more than the activity itself. So I find it pretty sad that Harry's looking forward to going out with these people who are just cruel to him. And I feel like Joe Rowling manages to convey the state of Harry's childhood indirectly simply by talking about Harry's feelings of happiness about the fact that he can go to the zoo with some unpleasant people. This experience actually made me think it's surprising that Harry doesn't get into abusive relationships when he goes to Hogwarts because for 10 years he doesn't know anything other than neglect, bullying, isolation and we you know we never hear about Harry having any friends outside Hogwarts so I think it would be reasonable for Harry to have a couple of experiences with with people at Hogwarts before he finds friends who he really clicks with and has a healthy relationship with. I think you know, the more experiences you have, the more relationships you're in, you learn more about what's healthy for you and what love is to you, whether that's in a friendship or in a romantic relationship. And I think that helps you identify sort of where love is and where it isn't in your relationships with people. Um, so Harry, I guess, never really went through that process. He just went to Hogwarts and meets Ron and Hermione and all is great, at least with those those two anyway. On the other hand, there's this idea that a child's emotional imprint is made at an early stage in their development. So maybe Harry's early experience of love from his parents and then his mum's sacrifice out of love for him kind of makes an emotional imprint on Harry which stays with him, just like his mum's protection stays with him throughout the books. So the Dursleys are resigned to the fact that Harry's going to be joining them at the zoo and we find out that one of the reasons the Dursleys don't want Harry to go with them is because odd things keep happening to Harry. We now know that these events, which include him running from being bullied by Dudley's gang and trying to jump behind some dustbins, but then somehow ending up on the school roof, are actually caused by the fact that Harry's a wizard. And we hear that, you know, wizards recognise Harry as he's walking down the street with the Dursleys. And so he describes a, a woman, I think, in purple and a man in green. And I've, I actually read on the uh, Wizarding World website that because of the, you know, the statute of secrecy, where wizards have to keep their existence a secret from muggles, one way wizards recognise each other is through wearing purple or green. So I think the fact that these people who recognise Harry are wearing purple and green is a reference to that, which I, I didn't know before, actually. Anyway, Harry goes to the zoo with the Dursleys and the annoyingly named Piers Polkis. And this name actually reminded me of a documentary I saw about Joe Rowling ages ago. And the documentary came out while she was still writing the Harry Potter books. 
and it sort of delves into her past and goes with her to significant places she'd spent time at during her childhood. And uh, one place they went was a church that she went to as a child, and there was this register where people signed in, and she could see where she'd written her name years before. And then she suddenly closes the book because she doesn't want the cameras to see uh, what's written in the book. And she said, oh, I've just seen this name written down, which I used in the book, and it's the name of a disliked character. So I wonder if Piers Polkis is based on some really annoying person, because the name sounds really annoying. I mean, if he is, I bet he's based on a snitch, because he tells on Harry at the end of this chapter, I feel like. Snitches get stitches, Piers. But anyway, speaking of names, there was a boxing match on recently between a guy called Ted Cheeseman and Sam Eggington. I mean, you can't make that up. So Harry goes to the zoo with the Dursleys and Piers Polkis, and this is the first time we experience magic with Harry. So the scene starts with Harry in the reptile house where he's looking at a snake with the Dursleys and Uncle Vernon's rapping on the glass to try to get the snake to do something to entertain Dudley. And they get bored, they leave Harry there, at which point Harry starts talking to the snake and amazingly the snake responds to what Harry's saying. And obviously we find out about the significance of Harry being able to talk to snakes as the book goes on. Uh, but at this stage, there are several obvious parallels which come up between Harry and the snake. For example, the snake is enclosed and held in captivity, like Harry is under the stairs. The snake is bothered by people rapping on the glass to get it to do something, and Harry likens this to Aunt Petunia rapping on the door to wake him up in the morning. And obviously, the snake is from Brazil, but has never been home, so doesn't understand its roots or where it comes from. And in the same sense, Harry doesn't understand his wizarding roots and where he came from. So Harry's probably empathising with the loneliness of the snake. So Dudley gets very excited by the increased activity of the snake, and he punches Harry out of the way, and in his anger, Harry accidentally makes the glass vanish and the snake escapes. Also, the snake is described as being able to wrap its body around Uncle Vernon's car twice and crush it. But in the film, the snake doesn't look anywhere near that big, which I thought was kind of weird because in the movies they have a basilisk, they have dragons, so I don't know why the snake was so small. But anyway, this also brings me to a point which I've never understood, which is why, you know, wizard or witch children can make magic happen if a situation is emotionally intense enough, like in this situation where Harry feels really angry with, uh, with Dudley. But then they go to Hogwarts, they learn how to do magic with a wand, and they seem to stop being able to do that. And, okay, I know there's a situation in Prisoner of Azkaban when Harry blows up his aunt by accident without a wand, but there are lots of situations in the books where Harry doesn't have his wand and it's an emergency and he's grasping for his wand and I'm thinking, why doesn't he make something happen without his wand in this moment of huge need? Like when he's being attacked by the snake Nagini in book six or something and he doesn't have his wand and Hermione sort of comes to the rescue. I feel like that's not really made more clear in the books. So Harry goes home with the Dursleys, who punish him for this snake incident, which must also be kind of confusing for Harry, because he doesn't even know what he's doing to make these situations happen, and then he's being punished, so it must be pretty confusing. So that's how the chapter ends, and fortunately we know that Harry's time with the Dursleys is soon coming to an end. I hope you've enjoyed listening, thanks a lot for tuning in, and next episode we'll be talking about Harry receiving his Hogwarts acceptance letter. 